This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations, and we're all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-styled disciple maker. Today's podcast features Discipleship.org partner, Global Discipleship Initiative, and their track at the National Forum called Turning Your Church into a Disciple-Making Mission. The track relates to what can be called church culture, which is the way you naturally function as a church. Discipleship.org has a free resource on church culture to help you become a disciple-making church. And you can download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's a visual introduction to the book Disciple-Making Culture. Download this free resource on church culture to get practical guidance on changing the culture at your church into a church that's focused on disciple-making as something you are, not just something you do. So go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for the Disciple-Making Culture visual introduction. The episode for today is called The Relational Environment, Multiplication, featuring Greg Ogden and Ralph Rittenhouse. Take a listen. Welcome back to those of you who are in our first session. As we explained, uh, as you see with your outline in front of you, uh, the first page tells you that we have developed a sequential development of these topics. And last hour, we looked at the end goal, starting with the end in mind. Uh, what does a transformed church look like that has been transformed into a disciple making mission? You heard from Ralph uh, Rittenhouse, uh, in terms of that story, got through some of the characteristics um, that were there, but we want to sort of stay on track topically here as well. You can see this session, this, so you're following uh, this image uh, out, uh, successful journey we began with, uh, consists of three elements, uh, you can see that on your first page, the relational environments, uh, and where we'll introduce the topic here of a microgroup and some of those characteristics of what those are. Uh, this session will last until the next session as well, when we look at transformation, this focuses on multiplication. And then every group needs an intentional leader, and uh, so the leader of the microgroup, we say, is the most important leader in church, and look at what their responsibilities are, how they form a group, those kinds of things, get down into the details of launching groups. Reproducible process has to do with the content that you use in the microgroup, I talked about the content that goes into the container, into the transformative environment, um, which is the, the disciple-making uh, material. So that's the GPS or map uh, that you follow and transferable tool. So um, come on up, Ralph, and introduce uh, Bob Marvel to us and your work at uh, Cornwall Church. And then we're going to start with a testimony uh, from a pastor in this session of who's been converted to this process, who Ralph has been working with very closely. Uh, for those of you who were, how many of you were then in the last session? How many were not in the last session? About half and half. Okay. Just quickly bring you up to speed here. Uh, Greg and I formed Global uh, Discipleship in 2015. And it was the year I retired from the pastor, senior pastor that I'd been there for 32 years, where we had used this in the church there 
and saw radical transformation in the whole church. Um, then I moved to Washington, where my son-in-law uh, was on the staff of a church there. He was on my staff in Southern California for a number of years, and then this bigger church came and scooped him up and took him up to Northern uh, Washington. But I'm going up to see my grandsons, and we decided that's a good place to retire, so when I retired, we, we went up there to live. And I went to the church where he was involved, and I love the church. It's a good church and great pastor, and so I uh, asked the pastor. Uh, we, we got together, talked about this, and I um, shared what I'd done in Southern California and what God had done through it, and I asked him if, I, if he would mind if I did it up here in Washington. And he said, no, I wouldn't mind at all. In fact, I want to be in your first group. Uh, so he joined the first group. And um, we have had a, a great four-year run now as the things are progressing. And I want you to hear from uh, Pastor Bob Marvel, a church of about 3,000 people or so on Sunday mornings. And a great congregation of people and a lot of stuff happening. So let's hear from Bob. I want to tell you a little bit about my introduction and my experience with quad discipleship groups uh, and using the discipleship essentials. But to understand this, give you a little bit of a backstory. I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. Grew up going to Sunday school, going to something very similar to Awana. Uh, spent every summer uh, in vacation Bible school. As I got older, I went to youth group. I've been in one-on-one discipleship uh, groups where I was being discipled. I discipled individuals in one-on-one groups. I've been in men's Bible studies, couples, small groups, all these for discipleship. The purpose is for spiritual growth. And I want to uh, suggest that possibly the quads and the discipleship essentials may take things to a next level. I was first introduced to this by a man named Ralph Rittenhouse. Some of you know Ralph. We refer to him as the quad father around here. It was either going to be the quad father or quadzilla. So I'd go with quad father. But I knew him years ago uh, because he was a senior pastor in Camarillo, California. His church there was a host of the Leadership Summit, as was Cornwall. So we would meet each other and see each other uh, at these gatherings of host pastors. In addition to that, his son-in-law, Mike Ford, had come on our staff, and so I knew his daughter and his his son-in-law. After he retired uh, from vocational, full-time vocational senior pastor ministry, he and his wife, Jackie, moved here to Bellingham and became a part of Cornwall Church. And one day I was asking his daughter, Chrissy, how her dad was doing with the retirement and not preaching every week and not having Easter services or Christmas Eve. And she said, well, he's really involved in this global discipleship thing, and he's really excited about that. So when I ran into him, I said, Ralph, I'd like to hear about uh, your involvement and what you've got going. So we went and had coffee. And the reality is this. If you ever talk to Ralph, it won't take but about three or four sentences, and somehow he has a way of turning the conversation toward Jesus and towards quads and discipleship. And so he was talking about the Global Discipleship Initiative, GDI, and what they were doing throughout the world, and what these quads were. And I asked him if he was going to start one here in in Bellingham or Whatcom County, and if so, could I be a part of it? And so I got to be one of his uh, members of his very first quad here in Whatcom County, and we signed on the dotted line that covenant on March 2nd, uh, 2016. Uh, the Quad is a group of four individuals, and it uses this curriculum of discipleship uh, essentials. And there's the discipleship essentials is really a great, uh, a great foundational tool. It's almost like a systematic theology, great foundation for people who are new to the faith, 
It's actually a great reminder for people who have been walking with the Lord for a while. One of the things I love about it is that it has the discipline of Scripture memory as well as uh, meeting together in accountability and relationships over the course of maybe a year, year and a half. And uh, the thing that I think is so great about this is that the goal is not just to become a spiritual adult. I mean, I grew up hearing about baby Christians and young in their faith, and then the goal is for them to be mature and become a spiritual adult. The goal of the quads in this curriculum is to become a spiritual parent, in that the fact is now I'm not just mature, but I am reproducing myself in others. And so the kind of the secret sauce behind all this is that in the covenant that you make from the very beginning, it's this strong consideration that you will give to at the end of your discipleship a year, year and a half, that you will then start your own quad. And the great thing about that is the way that this has a multiplying effect built into it. This is different than any other discipleship program I've been exposed to, and I think this is one of the things that will make it most effective uh, for the future. A year or so ago, I was on a sabbatical. And on that time away, uh, two things. I was walking with my wife across Spain, so I had a lot of time to think every single day. In that journey, I turned 55, which was kind of a, a milestone year. And in reflection on my life, 55, my ministry at Cornwall, the remaining chapter of being a senior pastor in the next 10 or 15 years if the Lord were to allow, how would I best utilize that time in this, this final run of my ministry? And one of the things that I came to the conclusion of is I want to just continue to point people to Jesus. But I thought about the kind of impact that I would have of preaching sermons that would be great, of leading the church that would be great, but of pouring my life into others. And so I've just started my third quad, and I cannot imagine over the next 10 or 15 years or however long I have here on this earth and here at this church, and even beyond that into my retirement years, of ever not having a quad where I am pouring myself into other individuals, where we're learning and growing together, where I'm learning from, and where it's multiplying to allow other people uh, to be able to do that with groups as well. The kind of impact that that will have on our church, the kind of impact that that will have on our community, the kind of impact that that will have in the kingdom of God is far greater than can happen just in weekend services. So I'm very excited about quads. I'm very much involved with these. I believe in these. And I really am excited that you're considering being a part of one. And I think that you'll be blessed if you do. Okay, quad father, come on up and lead us through the definition of a microgroup. Where's Rob? Oh, there he is. Hi, Rob. Stand up, Rob. Uh, when I got to Washington, I, um, I had already dropped off a copy of Discipleship Essentials with another pastor in town, and we met at the, the, the Leadership Summit, and he said, hey, uh, we're all about discipleship. We want to do this, but I don't think I can do without having gone through a group. Can you start a group with me in it? And I said, well, do you know any other pastors that might be interested and he said, well, yeah, I do. And so he called Rob, and Rob agreed, and that was rich. And, uh, and we had a uh, high school basketball coach who was a part of our quad, and we had a great time. Rob, just a quick uh, comment on your experience there and what, what you've done with that. Yeah, so uh, I was about five and a half years into uh, planting the church in Bellingham, Washington, still at downtown Bellingham, and just doing the all the stuff that you're supposed to be doing as a church planner, you're doing the preaching, you're trying to, you know, lead your staff, reach, unreach people, doing all the stuff. 
And one of the ways that I came to know the Lord was through some intentional discipleship, but I struggled with knowing actually how to lead the church, get things rolling, get people you know on board, reach lots of people, do all of this stuff, and also make disciples at the same time. And the big question I had was not the why of it, but how to actually accomplish that. What do I do to actually make disciples that make disciples? And uh, sat down with Ralph uh, one day at a, at a coffee shop, which was kind of a big deal. It was a bunch of boss out there. And we had a conversation around, uh, around the quad and around discipleship essentials. And I, I remember I asked him a question, and this is the thing that sold me on it, was what is it that makes this methodology unique? And what makes it effective? And, and so he, he shows me this text message that he got from somebody that was just multiplying, I don't know, their sixth or seventh quad or something like that. And then he tells me about this person that they are the most introverted person he's ever met. <laughs> and they're a behind-the-scenes person. They would never be up front on a stage with a microphone. They'd never be preaching sermons, would never see themselves doing that at all. And yet they have discipled some 20, 30 people that are now discipling additional people. And so the multiplicative process was the thing that sold me on it. So we started it, I think it was 2016. So we started our first squad in the church. And uh, and by the time I passed the baton at the church and, and I handed it off to somebody else, I think we had around 120 people in discipling relationships uh, within the church body. And so it completely shifted the culture from being uh, consumeristic and entertainment-driven to discipleship and relationship-oriented. And it just completely changed the trajectory and the culture of the church. It's been amazing. So now that I've moved to Nashville, we're implementing this as a church where I'm at now, and it's it's changing. It's making, making great change in the culture as well. So... Thank you, Rob. Yeah. We had, a, we had a great time there with that group, and, and it's still going on uh, as God is continuing to use it. Well, uh, turn to page 11 in your uh, outline. Last page. Last page, okay. What is a microgroup? Just so we get this clear so that we understand. Um, <clears throat> what we do as far as discipleship and how we do it, we use a curriculum called Discipleship Essentials. Uh, most of you have seen this. It's a 25-lesson curriculum. If you get through a lesson in less than two weeks, you're going really fast. <laughs> it, does, it takes approximately a year to go through on average. I had a group that just finished after two and a half years. Um, Great group. The guys loved it, but just went slow. And it's okay going slow. Uh, you don't have to go. It's not time-driven. It's not calendar-driven. It's transformation-driven. The whole thing. This is, a, this is a curriculum. That's all. It's a curriculum. What God does in the hearts of the people in the group is what's important. This gives us a, a track to run on, uh, but God's got to do the work. And so you want to let it take as long as it takes for God to do his work. Okay? Um, so we, we do them in gender-specific quads, typically. Uh, guys with guys, gals with gals. We do them in fours because three is a little... It, it'll work. You can do them with threes, but if somebody's missing, you got a one-on-one, right? 
so it's it, it's not quite. And I found when I, I I started with a triad that added a fourth guy uh, about five weeks in, and I saw the richness of the interchange markedly uh, better after adding that fourth person. You add a fifth. All of a sudden, you're cutting down on the interactive time of each person in the group. They don't get to share as much. So if you add more people, some people say, well, Jesus had 12. Can I have 12? Yeah, but, you know, you're going to have to meet with them 24-7. You know, <laughs> that's the way that works, you know. Uh, if you're only meeting an hour and a half a week, then it's probably better with four. So uh, we can answer any more questions on that later if you'd like. But let's move over to uh, page 11 and just take a look at the uh, diagram of a microgroup, what it is. Um, again, as Greg said, the microgroup is the container. We look at our illustration of the car, and I think that's on the front of the, or near the front, but you have the illustration of the, the, the environment. Uh, if you're going on a journey, you need something to go in, and the car is that, and that's what the microgroup is. It's, it's our um, <clears throat> environment uh, for this learning process takes two or three uh, is three or four people usually and as i said four how do you get those four people how do you choose those we talked about this a little earlier uh, in the last session we talked about how you select them uh, some people say well i want to I want, I want people that are going to turn this around real quickly i want to get the second timothy chapter two verse two kind of people you know that are going to be able to teach others also great that's a great strategy I did that as a senior pastor. I got people that I knew would multiply quickly and invited them in my groups. But uh, <clears throat> you may have a lot of newbies. You may have a lot of new believers that need it. And you just have to go slower. You accommodate as, as necessary in order to, to meet their needs. Um, <clears throat> but we're talking about three or four in that kind of a culture where they're going to, um, the Holy Spirit is going to be able to uh, bring about the growth. One of the things that does that, I'm convinced so effectively, is having people articulate for themselves what they're learning. When you go into a church service on Sunday morning, and I'm the pastor, and I talk for 40 minutes, and you didn't say anything, you only learn a certain amount. You can only take in so much that way. But if you're able to interact with me, that's a much better environment for growth and for understanding and for assimilating the data. Not only that, you haven't got one person talking, you've got four people talking. So you're learning from a rich environment of others who have spent time in the Word, letting the Holy Spirit speak into their lives as they're answering their questions, and then they come and they're excited to tell you. They're excited to tell you what God showed them in that passage or from that, uh, in that question. So there's this, this uh, excited interchange that goes on when the group gets together. Uh, the why. <clears throat> Since the mission of the church is to make disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, there's a need um, for a specific way to do that. Uh, as Rob said a moment ago, that's what it gave him. Uh, it gave him tracks to run on, something he could use. Uh, to bring about the <coughs> making of disciples or maturing of disciples in his congregation. That's what we found. Uh, we had hit a wall, frankly, as far as my church down in Southern California. We had a wall after 27 years, 25 years ago, right in that area. Uh, we just we weren't seeing the kind of growth we knew was necessary and important 
And so we had to find a solution, and this was our solution. Um, <clears throat> that's the why. Jesus said we're supposed to do it. Um, we're supposed to be making disciples, and we didn't feel like we were really doing that very well. Um, so the how. Uh, we come to the, the covenant agreement. You've heard that mentioned a couple of times. If you look in the first part of the book, and often when I'm introducing people to the process, inviting them to be in my group, I hand them a copy and I say, read the first 17 pages there. I'm not sure how many it is because they renumbered them here. They're Roman numerals here. It's 16. <clears throat> and on page 16, you've got a covenant. Okay? And the covenant basically says, I'll do my homework. I'll complete the homework before I show up from, for the meeting. I'll put aside uh, an hour and a half to meet with my group every week. <clears throat> I'll offer myself to the Holy Spirit to, for Him to do His work in my life and anticipate an accelerated time of growth. Uh, I'll contribute to a climate of openness and honesty, transparency in the group. And then finally, I'll give serious consideration to continuing the discipling chain by committing myself to invest in at least two or three other people in the year following my initial completion of Discipleship Essentials. So right from the beginning, the person understands this is not about discipleship. This is about disciple-making. Okay? Much, there's a big difference. Any questions so far? <coughs> Clarify the difference between discipleship and disciple-making. Thank you. Uh, we were at this conference last year, and we were in the leaders' meeting before the whole thing starts, and all the leaders of the various discipleship organizations, and one of the guys got up, and I don't remember who it was, stood up and said, <clears throat> I want to call to your attention the verbiage we're using. There's a difference between discipleship and disciple-making. Discipleship is about me. Disciple-making is about somebody else. A lot of people go into discipleship because they want to grow spiritually. Wonderful, that's great, that's good. But that's a totally different thing that, than going into it to learn to be a disciple maker. And so we make it clear right from the beginning, this is about learning to be a disciple maker. And we want them to understand. And, of course, that <clears throat> sort of motivates their homework. That motivates their participation um, a little bit because they realize they're going to have to take this and teach it to somebody else. Someone asked, asked in the last session, and for those of you who weren't here, uh, is it possible to do this in a mixed group? Can you have husbands and wives together? And there are a couple of reasons why we don't recommend that. has been done. Uh, some people do it, but it has limitations. Uh, a major one is that you can't be as honest and transparent in a mixed group as you need to be for God to do the work of transformation. Uh, I'm, I don't know that I've ever had a men's group that pornography didn't come up in just the conversation that's there because this is an issue that men struggle with in our culture. Uh, that's not going to happen very often in a mixed group. It's not, those kinds of things aren't going to be touched. And God can't do the work that he needs to do uh, in our lives. So there's one major reason why you don't mix. Another one is, that, and I said this kind of <clears throat> humorously, as many times couples, there's a spokesperson in the group there's one mouthpiece, you know, and if you ask her a question, he answers. Or if you ask her a question, whoever's the mouthpiece answers for the couple, and the other one can kind of just slide and hide. So <clears throat> it's better to get them separated if you can. Um, I know that most of the guys that are in my groups, 
it's not long before they're saying, my wife needs, my, I have, can, you, can your wife start a group with my wife, you know, kind of thing, because they want their wives to have the experience of it as well. Um, often in the churches that I've been a part of, we've started men's groups first, just because I'm a man and I'm starting them, so I'm starting men's groups, but it's not long until the women start saying, hey, hey, what about us? Yeah, okay, well, yeah, you can start a group, and so we'll try to help them get, you know, get the women's side. And then they do much better than we do anyway, because they're more into this relationship stuff. That You know, that's easy for them. For guys, it's a little rare. But you hire a female who's the director of discipleship, right? <clears throat> Our, that's what we did in the church we're in now. Uh, they, they went out and hired a director of disciple-making, and it's a gal. And so she's making sure the gals are not mis- underrepresented. Um. When? When does the group meet? Well, tell me when your groups can meet. Some of you got them going already. Anytime, early morning, evening. We've done early. Tell me, uh, what, how most, early? Most business guys like them early. They like to Start go before they go to work, don't they? Yeah. yeah, I've got a 6 o'clock group that meets regularly, yeah. 6 a.m. 545. 5.45, yeah. <laughs> Get it done, yeah. So guys will do that. Business guys particularly can do that. Uh, gals, when do you meet? Lunch. Lunch. Lunch is good. Lunch is good. Yeah. Six o'clock is way too early. Particularly if you've got kids, that's totally out. But, you know, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so you find the time, and any time is good. Uh, whatever works. And with four people, you can generally find a time. You know, even though you're busy and people have things to do and whatever, you find a time. Uh, I find that the, the early morning time with businessmen is great because very few things get in the way. You know, so that's a good time. You know, if they, okay, if they're out of town and on a trip, yeah, okay, maybe you postpone or whatever. But, um, <clears throat> but that's a time that doesn't get interrupted much. Um, Afternoon after school, uh, that gets a little iffy because they're picking up the kids or whatever. But you just find the time that seems to work best. Come One of our guys who caught fire and multiplied, uh, he brought it to church. He started with their elders. And they always went with a Sunday school out 90 minutes time. And that was the time that they could hit the biggest percentage of people. And he's on his fifth generation. Wow. Now. Yep. Super, super. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a guy in our church that meets Sunday afternoon after church. And that's when his squad meets. Uh, some of them meet Sunday night, some of them, but just all different times. So you find the time that the schedules can match, and you look for that, that time, and that's one of the first things you do is carve out the time in the schedule. Everybody commits to it. And I've had groups where... Somebody has this crazy shift that they never know what time they're going to work during the week, and you got to call every week and call everybody to make sure. And that's tough. It's doable, but it takes a lot more work. Uh, and I, we used to put uh, little stickers on the outside of our, uh, our books, and if your green sticker means you're in a group. A red sticker means you're leading a group because you're bleeding now, <laughs> you know. Uh, the, the leader bleeds, you know, to, to make sure the group's working. Okay, what happens, what happens when somebody is in the group and they're not living up to the commitment they made in the covenant? Uh, 
because sometimes that will happen. We had a guy in one of our groups, just businessman, <clears throat> had lots of demands on him, uh, and he was not meeting the covenant. He was not doing his homework well. He'd come with the verses not memorized. He just was underperforming, <clears throat> and we had to call him on it. The guys in the group called him on it. Um, we didn't know it at the time, but his marriage was in trouble too, and that began to be when we became aware of that, we began to put special time aside and spend special time with him in that. But that was, I think, contributing a lot to the underperformance. Many times there's a, there's, a re, there's a reason that they're not. If they've committed to this and now they're not living up to it, what's the difference? They wanted to do it, but they're not doing it. Why? Uh, sometimes there may be a good reason for that, and you just have to work with those situations. Revisiting the covenant is important. And going back and saying, hey, we agreed to this. Uh, everybody else is doing it. If you do it, we're better off. We learn when you when you help us learn when you've done your part. So, <clears throat> yes, yes, there is a time when you may have to say, you know, I'm I, I'm getting the the feeling that this is this at this point in your life, this is not a good time for you, and I want to give you an off ramp. Okay, no hard feelings, no foul. You know, if you wait for the next time. <laughs> sure. Sometimes chemistry doesn't work. Sometimes the chemistry's not working. Yeah. yeah, that's true too. That doesn't happen very often, no, it but doesn't. it has happened. Yeah. Ralph, I'm going to suggest that we slip on here okay. and uh, make sure we stay somewhat on task uh, in terms of our content. So um, we want to put a biblical foundation <laughs> under what we're doing here. What's the impetus behind all this? And that's where we'll take a look at some biblical. Foundation. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. We'll take a kind of a brief look here at Jesus' model of, of ministry. So it says, In these days, Jesus went out on the mountainside to pray, and all night he continued to pray to God. And when he came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he also named apostles. So, how far are we into Jesus' public ministry at this point? Uh, speculation is that maybe Jesus has been out uh, in public ministry already, maybe six months, nine months. We don't know exactly. It's kind of guesses. He's gathered up a larger entourage of disciples. And we already know that Peter, James, and John from Luke 5 have been called. We know that Matthew, the tax collector, has been called. But we know it's also more than 12 uh, that are a part of this group uh, that are itinerating around with him. And so... We come to this uh, very strategic moment in Jesus' ministry, and Luke sort of underscores it, exclamation point as well, by saying Jesus spent all night in prayer, and then the next day he called his disciples to him and chose from them a group of 12. Uh, I always like to speculate, what do you think Jesus was praying about uh, on that night before he was going to gather his disciples and decide on the, the 12 or appoint the 12? Any thoughts about might what have been on Jesus' heart? Uh, if we had been able to eavesdrop on his conversation with the Father, what would he have been talking to the Father about? Do you really want Judas in my small group? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do you really want Peter in my small group? So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but that one probably true. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, did Jesus have any of those personality issues <laughs> that you might think, you know, in terms of that situation or whatever? Uh, what other? What was that? Which twelve? Yeah, he had a list of fifteen. He had to get rid of three. Which which three should that be? Right. 
so he could have been still settling in on uh, the voice from the Father. What else? What else do you think about that Jesus would have been on Jesus' mind? Maybe praying about their heart uh, preparation. Heart preparation. Probably already, you know, taking a Peter, realizing I got a lot of raw material here. Uh, lots of work to be done, but I'm going to be praying him into the person that he can become. Uh, that's part of the privilege of, of engaging in discipleship too, isn't it? To be able to not see a person for what they are at the moment, but what they can become uh, under his, his influence and, and shape. And then um, Jesus calls this gathering to, to himself. Uh, it's pretty indi- clear on that day that he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. So I speculate, let's say he had a group of about this size, just for him, and he walked through and said, okay, you're going to, no, sorry, oh man, I'm trying to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he almost seemed to do this publicly, didn't he? Yes. Uh, in terms of this selecting out, I think if I were not chosen, I would have felt like on the outs, um, but uh, seemed to risk that particular <laughs> dynamic in terms of that, that selection process. But what do you think he was trying to accomplish? Why choose the 12? Why should not so, not so forget, forget about the symbolic number at this point, but why a s- smaller group? If you were to go on and read beyond this text, you would see that Jesus was at a great popular moment in his ministry. The crowds were getting bigger and bigger. Why not just depend upon this mass movement uh, to take over and let that be you know, the direction things were going? What was the need what was he trying to accomplish being having a, a few with whom, in whom he invested himself? I want to hear some answers. Yeah. Relational. Relational. Say more about that. Why, was that, why is that important? Okay. So Jesus couldn't have a relationship with the crowds that would yield the kind of results that he wanted? In the church, we think we can do that. <laughs> Don't we? Every Sunday morning, every Saturday night? Um, we have discipleship in our church. We preach at people. I'm sorry to be so harsh about it. I was a preacher for a good portion of my life. <laughs> but we rely on that, don't we? And don't have the relational connection. So relationship would be important in terms of transformation and connection. What other reasons? What was... What? Get specific rather than just general addressing the crowd, generally addressing the crowd to get specific with what we Okay, specific in terms of what an individual needs. So Jesus had a lot of teaching opportunities, didn't he, in a personal way. You see this throughout his, his ministry. The disciples are constantly jockeying for who's the greatest uh, among them, and Jesus has to call them on that and takes the moments uh, through that. James and John slip up to beside Jesus. When you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and left hand? Uh, the rest of the people hear about that, and they say, why didn't we think of that? You know. Uh, so Jesus had to call them to another lifestyle. So teachable moments were are very vital. Yeah? To uh, reproduce himself as the guide by the side rather than the sage on the stage. Guide by the side. Yeah. I, I love that phrase. Yeah. Guide on the side instead of the sage on the stage. You know, So coming alongside his disciples and, and moving along rather than just being separate from and talking to uh, the disciples. Good. Ultimate goal was what? Where was he heading with these 12? What did he want them to do? Jesus was going where? (laughs) 
he was on his way to the Father, right? And I'm turning this over uh, to these 12. So I've got to get them ready uh, for that transition. And we fast forward to John chapter 17 and uh, the high priestly prayer. And Jesus prays for his disciples there at, at the end. And then he says in John 17, 4, I have completed the work that you have given me to do, referring to the disciples. Realize that that word, that phrase completed, is exactly the same word that Jesus utters from the cross when he says, it is finished. Exactly the same, to Uh I've completed the work. Well, he hadn't been to the cross yet. We know that ultimately the sacrifice that he made on our behalf is absolutely, you know, essential. How can you say that? But also he put his eggs in that basket of the 12, right? He invested. That's where he was going to multiply himself. Uh, in that in that setting, so very vital. So, let's just take a look at a couple of things in terms of why what Jesus was trying to accomplish. Uh, first is what I call internalization. He was trying to transfer his uh, message, manner, and mission into the lives of these twelve, and the only way to do that was relationally, up close and personal, to invest himself in, in them, walk with them over a, a period of time. Uh, I'm I'm thankful for in my life that I had somebody like that for me. You know, as I was going into my sophomore year in college, I got a phone call from a man by the name of Don, who was our junior high pastor at the church. Uh, he was actually a seminary student, had started an outreach ministry to junior high kids, um, you know, 12 to 14 years old. I had come to faith in Christ myself, about a 12-year-old at a camp, seventh grade, and uh, invited me to be a part of his team. And how would you like to minister to a group of junior high kids on Wednesday nights? You know, he had about 120, 130 of them showing up every Wednesday nights with all the energy that they did bouncing off the gym walls. And uh, he needed help, you know, invited me in on that in that process. And uh, lo and behold, what I get every Wednesday night was a group of seventh grade boys to, to invest in, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. And uh, Don would say to us, get out, meet with these kids on their turf, Meet them after school, go play basketball with them, go meet their families, invest in their lives. I did it. You know, I got involved uh, in their lives. And then Don would call up me up and say, oh, I would like to get together and play some tennis. And we would play some tennis. I was playing competitive tennis in those days. And so I'd get to win a tennis match. And uh, then we would sit down on the bench next to the tennis court. I have such vivid memories of this. And Don would pull out his New Testament began sharing with me some things in Scripture uh, that were meaningful to his life. But he took me into the interior of his life. He would say, you know, some of this stuff really points out areas of my life that I need to change. And even would identify those Scriptures uh, for me. And I recall sitting next to him on that bench, liking what I was seeing in Don's life, and having this feeling of if Don wants to follow Jesus, I do too that transference of life on life that occurred for me. And that's certainly what Jesus was doing with, with his disciples. So uh, it says mentions that he dis- distrusted the populace here um, and that uh, you know, didn't, Jesus didn't entrust his future ministry to the fickleness of the crowds. They could be with him one moment and gone, gone the next. And here's my favorite quote uh, from J.B. Bruce's book, The Training of the Twelve. He says, this pain, careful, painstaking education of the disciples secured the teacher's influence on the world should be permanent. That his kingdom should be founded on the rock of deep and indestructible convictions in the minds of a few, 
not on the shifting sands of superficial impressions in the minds of the many. Isn't that a powerful statement? You know? Rock of deep and indestructible conviction in the minds of few, not the superficial impressions on the minds of the many. So he focused there. And I think one of the major causes for superficiality, and that's the word I would use to describe the state of discipleship in the church, is superficial. Uh, I think all the evidence, I think we heard a lot of that in our major session today in terms of all the stats that, that we heard. But one of the main reasons for that is that we have diverted our leaders uh, from equipping. Uh, we have our leaders doing a lots of other stuff than equipping the saints for the work of ministry from the building up of the body of Christ. And so uh, to take a look at probably the passage of Scripture that um, gives the job description of a pastor is this from Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, maybe pastors and teachers, to do one thing. Equip the saints who would then do the work of ministry, and if they're doing the work of ministry, then in turn the body of Christ gets built up. So, um, who's to do the work of ministry according to this? The God's people, the saints are God's people? Is that everybody? Every people in whom Christ dwells? Okay, uh, so these are to do one thing, equip the saints. If they're, the saints are being equipped, and what's some other words that we could use for equip there? Train, develop. How about disciple the saints? <laughs> uh, for, the, for the work of ministry, that broad foundation thing that we've been, we've been talking about here. So the saints that are doing work of ministry. What has actually happened in the life of the church? Where have we skewed up the process or screwed up the process? We have programs. We have put an X through the equipped the saints and said these people should do the work of ministry. They're the professionals. They've been trained to do it. Uh, that's what we expect of them. You know. So um, in my first book that I wrote was called The New Reformation, Returning the Ministry of the People of God. And in that book, I tr- contrast the dependency model ministry to the equipping model ministry. And dependency model ministry is that the church becomes dependent upon the pastors to do ministry to them and for them. And the expectation is, if something goes south in my life, pastor, you better show up, because if you don't show up, then you're not doing ministry. You're not caring for me. So caregiving roles, hospital visitations, uh, etc. We even set up on Sunday morning kind of the centerpiece is the pastor who preaches the message on Sunday morning. I oftentimes think at the end of a sermon, I should look back at the choir, and they will have cards on their laps and have numbers rating the quality of the sermon like they would at a skate, skating rink. And, oh, that was a 9.2 today. No, that was more like a 6.5, Pastor. And then you shake hands at the door and have people come by, and they come by and say things like, you know, good sermon, Pastor. And sometimes they even say things like, wow, that was the best sermon on that topic I've ever heard. But here was my favorite comment that I got. A person came by. I called it a drive-by shooting. <laughs> and uh, the woman said, you know, you're getting better. <laughs> and where did my mind immediately go? Better than what? <laughs> better than that lousy preacher I used to be. So um, I, I think if I were the evil one and wanted to throw everything off, that's exactly what I would do. I would block out this, 
have the this group of people doing the work of ministry, and then the body of Christ will not get filled up, right? Uh, because the, the people are not uh, doing it in that way. So we have kind of the diversion of people. I'm going to go back um, to that initial model, because this is maybe a, an important question that I, I skipped over. So Jesus lays out before us the model of ministry of how you make disciples, a relational investment in a few. That model is right there for all of us to see. Why don't we follow it? What gets in the way of us seeing that and applying that in the life of the church? I need to hear back from you. Busy. What's that? Busyness. Busyness. Say more about what, what does that word busyness mean in this context? Distractions. Distractions in terms of pastoral distractions? Just life. Life? Okay. Priorities. Excuse me? Priorities. Priorities. Okay. Priorities. Are you going to have to say more about that? One is important. Okay, we have time to do what we want to do, and intentional disciple making is not as important as all these other. Because one of the things that we oftentimes hear when we're doing these workshops is, how can I add one more thing to my already busy life? And I'm not asking them to add one more thing to all their busy life to put it down at the bottom of their list of ten things that come before it. I'm asking them to do the same thing, exactly what you're saying. Put out the first thing in your life and figure out where everything else fits in. Uh, so shift the priorities. So it's, it's a matter of that, that issue. It's there. When it gets specific, it's messy. Yeah. Because you're dealing with things that are people are struggling with and hurts, and it's also time consuming. Yeah. Okay. Bit messy, time consuming. Lack, so, lack of the personal models yeah. of people showing yeah. what it is and how it works. Lack of personal models uh, in terms of how it works. But I think we've had in place a what I would call a Christendom model of pastoral ministry. And the principal model of pastoral ministry is that the role of the pastor from the expectations of the people is to be present uh, in certain of all caregiving situations. So visits to the hospital, um, illness, people's lives, uh, funerals, uh, counseling. Uh, the, role, the understanding that the pastor, to be a good pastor, has to be available at all times to the needs of the congregation. It's kind of the broad shepherding model. Uh, that has, has been taught and is still taught in seminaries. Uh, in addition to preparing for Sunday worship, preaching, etc., uh, all those other things that, that you do. Um, and so that has been the inherited model, and that's what expectations are from the congregation. Uh, pastors are like everybody else. We want to be people pleasers. We love to please what the expectations are. And so we get then, you know, tugged around for all these, living out all these different expectations. So I have a, we have a new pastor at our church, and I, I've said to him, uh, Tim, you have one of two options. You, you can be a blank slate and let people write their expectations on you, or you can define what your expectations are of yourself and let them fit in <laughs> to what that is. So you know, be, be overt about what you consider your role to be, particularly when a relationship uh, to discipline. Revelation of our shortcomings, and so we don't want to 
Yeah. We don't want them exposed, so we don't have to okay. put them in the right priority. Right. We know what the priority should be, yeah. but as long as nobody's telling you, okay. I'm not sure where exactly where you're going with that in terms of being exposed about our shortcomings, is what you're saying. But it can be a threatening thing for a pastor to sit down with three other, say, lay people and begin sharing their life. Uh, it's much easier to be up front where there's a distance where you're controlling the communication and a one-way communication than to sit down and engage your life with others. And I think that's, that's part of the threatening. I'm not sure if you were referring to that or not, but... Uh, that's one. That's one. I've got the other members too that might Yeah, it's a vulnerable thing uh, to be involved in these kind of relationships. So the members may not want to participate. That's exposure. And I think we, we experience that when we are making invitations. In fact, that's where I like to go with kind of the remainder of our, of our time here in, in this particular session. Um, we oftentimes encounter what I would call the program mentality in the life of the church. Uh, we want to plug in a program. So uh, let, let's say you're doing an assessment of your congregation, and it becomes clear that you have a discipleship deficit for one reason or another. Uh, maybe it's you're trying to recruit elders or deacons in your church, and like, okay, we're recycling the saints. We're putting the same people and back in over and over again. We're not creating a, n- a new set of leaders. Uh, I can't fill that person who's to, you know, teach the fifth grade Sunday school class, we obviously have a problem here. And and so what do you do? You say, well, we've got a discipleship deficit. Let's solve that problem. And so you appoint a committee in your church. I'm a Presbyterian. So you appoint a committee um, and you want to study the problem. And then once you've identified the problem, you go out and find the greatest and latest program that's out there. You come back and announce it on a Sunday morning to the whole congregation we're rolling out this 10-week program to make disciples, and you all sign up, and the same 10 to 20% that sign up for everything else sign up for that, and you haven't really penetrated much beyond I know, that, kind of, that kind of approach. So that's what I call the program approach. So you hope people walk, walk through this 10-week program, and out the other end, disciples pop out, right? So, uh, and that's usually something that doesn't go very far. What we're talking about here is a relational approach. It starts with a covenantal relationship. One person inviting two to three others, particularly three others, into a covenantal relationship where you gather around, as Ralph has already indicated, a group of commitments. Uh, You're sharing your life together. And in the context of community, in the context of relationship, the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to transform and change you as you are studying God's word together uh, and going through a particular way. And in that process, then disciples uh, are formed. But it starts with a personal invitation. And this is, I think, maybe one of the distinctions. Uh, we oftentimes, in terms of program, we'll get up in front of the church and we'll announce this big thing that we're starting. And uh, when you announce it uh, to, in mass, how many people think it's for them? <laughs> I'll ask for somebody else. Uh, or I don't have time. Or there's all kinds of immediate reasons. But... Jason, I'm going to use you as a guinea pig here. So, if I've been praying about starting a new discipleship group, this is the first step. Asking for the Holy Spirit's discernment. Lord, put on my heart those that you are, are calling me to. Help me to see those who are hungry. Help me to see those who you are drawing me to. And so I'm convinced that I want to invite Jason to join me. So I'm I'll come up and look you in the eye. <laughs> you know, and say, Jason, I'm starting this, this new group. It's for the purpose of 
really helping us all become better disciples of Christ. I want to be a follower, and I, I need others around me to, to do that. As I've been praying about it, Lord, just keep putting your name on my heart. That's the one I would like to be on this journey with you uh, together. I'll be together for a year, year and a quarter. Have some material to go through. I'll show you what all that, that is. But would you please be willing to ask if the Lord, if that's something for you at this time, that you would be interested in joining me in this process? What do you think? Okay. You can pray about it. Actually, I need you to tell people, don't tell me now. Pray about it. Early. Take a look at your schedule. Um, will adding one more thing in your life tip you over? You know, most of us live up to the edge of our margins, right? And so you have to do some investigation uh, to see whether that's really, really possible. But it's the difference between mass invitation and personal invitation is what we're, what we're trying to say. Where do we get that? Luke 6, chapters, <laughs> verses 12 and 13. Jesus spent all night in prayer and then called his disciples to him and then called the 12. And then he went on to, they went on to list the names in verses 14 through 16, right? Uh, so I assume Jesus had to call them by name out of that group into his, into his group and identify them publicly before the larger group uh, of disciples uh, in, in that setting. So the importance of that. So the personal invitation. Now let me end with this, and then we'll open it up for any uh, conversation here. What's the difference between a program and a relationship? Well, four qualities, I think. Uh, probably others, but these are the four that have come to my mind. Difference between in- intimacy and information. Most Bible studies programs are about biblical information but not personal application. And so in the context of a group of three or four, you're opening your life to each other. Um, we tend to have the class approach to teaching when I was at my church in Chicago. I inherited a church that thought if you stick a pastor up in front of a class and talk at them for an hour, then you have done something. And it's just like, okay, you have the teacher that has a full picture, and if I can take that full picture and pour it into your empty picture, transfer that content, that's it. But in relationships, we're talking about transformative power of the Spirit to share our life our life together and, and as we're talking over the truth of God's Word and applying it to right where we live, to our home life, to our work life, to our parenting, to our thought processes, um, to dealing with those internal Issues like Ralph was talking about earlier. So, um, intimacy versus information. Mutual participation versus one on behalf of the many. In programs, it's usually, this is a program today. Uh, We've come with content, right? And we're trying to pass it on to you. We have prepared some of the things and you are here to hopefully take it in and engage it. But in a small group, everybody comes prepared to interact. They've completed their material. They've thought about how the Holy Spirit has asked them to answer certain things biblically and through a series of questions. We're sharing our content uh, with each other. Um, probably the, the paradigm, which we've already alluded to, where you have one on behalf of the many, uh, most in the congregation is the preaching moment. You know, the pastor who has done preparation and preaches. Uh, I like to say if we could have made disciples by preaching at people, the job would have been done a long time ago. And then here's my other kicker. Even the greatest preacher who ever lived, Jesus himself, did not rely on his own preaching to make disciples. 
We're thankful that he had the teaching and that we have it recorded in the New Testament for us to study and apply it, but he relied on relationships, not on his, their public teaching, teaching moments. Uh, thirdly, customized versus synchronized. In most programs, 10 weeks to make disciples, you have, say, let's say 25 people. You all have to be at the same place at the same time walking through the program. So all 25 are lesson one, all 25 are lesson two, all 25 are lesson three. In a small group, you're customizing it. You get to know each other's stories. You get to know each other's ways of learning. Uh, you get to know what the ours, the struggles that an individual person is having. It's customized. Uh, so you look around this room. Uh, I don't see any two people who look alike. <laughs> um, and there's no two people who are alike in terms of their journeys. But in the context of a personal setting, you can customize the, the disciple-making process in that, that way. And then the final thing here is uh, life change versus content accountability. Most discipleship programs that I'm aware of are, did you memorize a verse? Did you fill in your work, work, answers in the workbook? Um, that's not what we're about. We're about seeing us to become more and more Christ-like and being equipped to disciple others. And that's in that, that setting. So let me, let me stop at this point. We're almost at the end, anyhow. Um, questions, comments? Sorry for rattling on there for a while. First session, how long, what amount of time are you talking about as far as preparation from the individual's part during the week? Well, Ralph mentioned two to three hours, but since we only get through about a half a lesson a week <laughs> in terms of actually covering the content in our groups, so there's 25 lessons, but rarely do you, you would not hardly ever get through. I have a group now that we, we get through two parts of a, of a four-part lesson uh, each, each time. So you're talking about an hour to an hour and a half probably of, of time a week. There's scripture memory in there, so that's a big variable in terms of how long it takes people to memorize the passage of scripture. And they're not real, not real some are longer than others, I'll, I'll admit that. But uh, so about in terms of weekly commitment, that would be it. And then we say, we suggest 90 minutes for your gathering together for your group time. So that's where I ask, ask people to add up. Okay, we're maybe adding to your life uh, at least three, maybe four hours a week in terms of your time, plus commute to get to your group. Um, so think about that. You know, can you p- put that into your schedule? Yes? You don't have the goal to get through one session every no. time. No. We do not have the goal to get through one session every time. Every group has its own length. Uh, so we do not program it on the academic year, start them in September, end them in June, because um, these are organic individual units. Every group has its own life. Uh, you will have things come up in your group in terms of life, quality of life threatening situations where you are setting aside the content because you have to deal with the issues going on. Marriage goes sideways. Somebody loses their job suddenly. Um, a report of a life-threatening illness. Um, these are things that you know, we don't just plow, plow on. Um, you, you stop to minister to people uh, in that setting. And sometimes they may take over your group for two or three weeks but you have tracks to get back on because the content that you have. Is there a time schedule in terms of how much is spent on content and how much is spent on relational in the group? Yeah, in our leader's guide at the, at the back of Discipleship Essentials, there's a suggested amount of some, yeah, maybe 30 minutes to, for catch-up. Sometimes each week you'll always have prayer requests and, uh, or other things that happen, so you might want to catch up on, okay, how did it go on such and such in terms of, prayer requests and spend some time just 
doing some catch-up, and then maybe 45 minutes of that time would be focused on the content. That's, that's a rough, rough number, so 30 and 45 minutes. Sometimes it could be 15 minutes of sharing, an hour of the content. Uh, some, I, I will sometimes reverse it and say, okay, we spent a little too much time sharing. We're going to start right into the content today, to plow through, and we'll save you know, some of the sharing to the end. Okay. So, yeah. How do you see? I think you already answered. It's not a program. It's about relationship. So, how do you go about if this ladies in your church that don't know about disciple making want to, but it's more than four? So, okay, let me just tell you. So, I spoke with the small group pastor and told him I was interested in possibly leading some type of whatever he thinks it should be, a group or a class. Um, but how do you go about doing that? Because I hear you saying, don't make a big, large announcement because it'll become a big class rather than relational, but how do you get pockets of more than just me and my Thor people? Like, how do you suggest you go about starting that to get the ball rolling? Okay, you're not going to like this answer. No, so how do you get the ball rolling with yeah, like, a few people? So it would be more than just my group and my Thor. Start with your group and your four. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I already had that. They're here. We're all in different classes. But. So we always say go slow. If yeah. you try to go too fast, um, then you'll, you'll mess it up. So experience it yourself with that group of four. Go through the process. Let them be encouraged to develop it and multiply their groups. It's going to take time. Uh, it'll take a year, year and a half, maybe before you get to where you, you want to go to see them multiply. Uh, take a long-range vision, long-range perspective, you know, three to five years out. I know that's, Americans don't think that way uh, in terms of we want fast yeah, microwave disciples, right? Um, so um, I'm just saying, start with that, focus in. You may find as you're going along, you'll have other allies that come along to see what you're doing, and that may re- replicate that self. So do, but, we, do I kind of like, you don't turn people away. You know, like if, if, if the score is good for me, yeah. like say if it's people that actually desire to be disciples, just learn about it. What, yeah. about, what do you do with those people? Say, hey, i got to finish up with these or five. Yeah. Hey, you got to wait a year and a yeah. half or two. Well, or you, you may have you may have a person or two in your group that's ready to launch a new group too before you're done. Okay. So that's okay as okay. well. So you don't have keep, to complete. You have some people that are are self motivated. You can always do six or seven groups yourself. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm. I need to. We need to be faithful on our time here. We already. Have- Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out and download for free the visual primer for the book, Disciple Making Culture. You can download this at discipleship.org ebooks. Until next time.